Shalom, and thank you for listening to the weekly teaching from Nachamu Ami. It's our honor that you've chosen to participate virtually, and we hope that this lesson will be an inspiration in your daily walk. Don't miss a single teaching. Be sure to download the Nachamu Ami app by visiting our website at www.makeandmessianic.com and clicking the Download the App button in the top left corner. Enjoy the message. Yeshua is not a sacrifice. That was last week's main thrust. Shocking, provocative, offensive probably, but true. Any way you slice it, true in the literal sense of the word. We talked about that extensively last week. And our last point though, the way I left you, was that it is unfair to say that Yeshua did not sacrifice because he did indeed sacrifice. He suffered immeasurable pain for us. And the question I asked you was a simple one. Why? I asked you why. Why did it have to be that way? The sovereign God of the universe, why that way? And, and if human sacrifice or temple sacrifice, bulls and goats, if that's not even in view in the process of what happened with Yeshua, even more importantly, the question might be, how? How could the bloody, tortured death of a man atone for our sins? This is what in Christian thought is known as an absolute. We had a discussion at the Shabbat table with a guest last night about absolutes. We were talking about what is an absolute and how difficult it is in religion to define anything by absolutes. Because everyone has an opinion. And my guest said, there are absolutes for certain. I said, okay, give me one. And she said that Yeshua came and died and was resurrected and ascended to heaven and atoned for our sins. And for that, we are going to heaven. Do you know what my answer was? Gravity is an absolute. There is no arguing that. You and I are proof that gravity is real. We are faced with other certain absolutes, many of them scientific. Oxygen is necessary. If your heart stops, you die. You have to breathe. There are all kinds of absolutes. But to say to me that this that Yeshua died, was buried, and resurrected, and he went up and atoned for our sins, and he's coming back down, and because of that, we're going to go to heaven, you cannot possibly tell me that in the whole world's mind that that is an absolute truth. Not to them. To us it is. But my point in all of that is that there are numbers of, of, of disagreeing opinions with what I'm going to say to you today. But what I suggest to you is that this is some of the most foundational, fundamental knowledge that you need to have in your understanding of what it means for Yeshua HaMashiach to have come to this earth and died. And how in the world that works for you and your future. 
You see, there, it's a given in Christian thought. Everyone knows that Yeshua's death atoned for sins. We need look no further than, I mean, have you read Isaiah 53, Damien? It's right there. Every Christian who wants to, who wants to evangelize Jews gives them Isaiah 53 and says it's right there. Right there. And that's fine. And that's beautiful. And that's a meaningful and true passage. But I have a problem. There are some significant Jewish objections to that. There are some significant things. Do you know how is the answer? Do you know how Isaiah 53 came to pass? You see, Christian thought has been wrestling with this for a long, long time. The church fathers had theories. John Calvin had theories. The 1800s had theories. We had the ransom theory for the for this church fathers, very common among them. How did this work? The ransom. God owed Satan a debt because of Adam's sin, and therefore, Yeshua was the ransom for that death. That's called ransom theory. That's one, what's the one, one Christian answer to how. There's the representative theory that by becoming a man, the perfect Yeshua, he became a human representative, and, and in his perfection as a man, he made us perfect. It's the, he became a representative of humanity. There's the satisfaction theory from the 12th century. Messiah was the substitute for humanity. Thus, he satisfied God's, God's need to have a, 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 a resolution to the sin issue. He, he was the substitute for us. Last week, we talked about the penal substitution theory, which came from the 16th century. John Calvin reformed theology. All of this comes around and says that, you know, Messiah substitutes himself willingly as a sacrifice in place of the sinner. And I'm telling you guys, this is it. One of these things is the answer, right? Well, there are bits of truth. But here's the problem. There are two common objections that rise from Judaism. Remember last week I asked you, how do you respond to a Jew who says to you, you're telling me that you're going to heaven because a human was sacrificed in your place? God doesn't believe in human sacrifice. He abhors it. That was a Jewish objection to Jesus. There are more. There are many more. Two of which are, we don't need a mediator that is not in view. We don't need a mediator. We can go to God. And secondly, and most importantly, no one else can die for your sins. You are responsible for your own sins. No one can, can take your place for your sins. Those are, those are common. No one can atone for the sins of another, and we don't need a mediator. So, so can you explain to me, Nahamu Ami, listeners, can you explain to me how apart from the, from the theories of hundreds or nearly thousands of years away from the first century understanding, can you tell me how it works? I had a conversation with someone. I said, tell me how Yeshua's blood atones for us. Tell me how my sins are forgiven because I want to know because I want you to be able to know. And the answer was, I don't know. But there's a serious problem here because last week, after last week's teaching, I kind of just have left you floating out there with, without a life vest. 
Yeshua is not a sacrifice. Uh, he's not a sacrifice to pacify a bloodthirsty God or, 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 I mean, substitution atonement. If, if it's not those things, what are we left with? How could it work? Why did it work? And why would the apostles, though they had access to Isaiah 53, why would they think that this atoned for their sins? Listen to this. Why would they believe this? Here's the story. We thought he was the Messiah. He came. He was killed by Romans, died on a stake, bloody, and my sins are forgiven. Where does that, how does, it's not exactly intuitive in the scriptures that that would be their end point. Now, you're saying, Damien, of course it is. No, you're 2,000 years past it. You're 2,000 years into Christian theology and ransom and representative and satisfaction and penal substitution. You, you're, you don't matter in that particular first century discussion. You matter a lot. Why would they have staked their lives on this idea? How can the author of Hebrews confidently write, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who've been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Where did they get that? From the events that took place, an execution equates to a promise of eternal inheritance? Well, of course it does, Damien. Yep, 2,000 years later, after a whole lot of people have told you that it does. But why? But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he's been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, better translated, by his sacrifice, that's what it actually means. But blood, atonement, sacrifice, it's all in there. And while metaphor is at work, a literal suffering occurred for you and I. He suffered and died so that you may live. How does it work? Have you got the question that I'm asking you yet? Why? How does it work? The surprising answer, not surprising to me, but surprising to many is that the answer is found in the Bible interpreted through Judaism and the traditional sages of Judaism. Passed on to the apostles and communicated to us in their gospels and writings. The answer is there. It begins with reclaiming a misrepresented God and we have talked about this on and on through this entire series. From Marcion Back in the first, second century, right, Darren? Second century, Marcion, who said the, the old God, the Old Testament God is mean. We're taking him completely out. Jesus came. He's the new God. And that's, he's not the only one. But from that point on, God has been represented as angry, wrathful in the Old Testament, mean, right? And we've talked a lot about this. 
But that's a misrepresentation, although it's not actually very hard to get to that when we read things like, you know, uh, well, I missed it, but where he, where he says to Moses after the golden calf, I'll destroy them in my anger. And there's a lot of things about anger and, and jealousy and all these other things he says. But that's not how God is represented. He is a consuming fire. He's a jealous God, even at times angry. But for a very particular reason, God is angry. It is not his defining nature to be angry. Psalm 89 says this, and I wrote a song about it one time that I was too complicated to actually ever play again. But it says this, justice and judgment are the foundation of your throne based on this justice and righteousness are the foundation of your throne. Justice, justice. God is not an angry God. He is a just God. In a few weeks, we'll read a Torah portion that says, justice, only justice shall you pursue. And Proverbs 21.3, do righteousness and justice. It's desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. We are to be holy like God is holy, and thus, He is just, and so we too should be just, and we like justice, right? We love justice. At least we liked it for one day. God said, Adam, don't eat of this. Adam ate of it. Justice says there's a punishment that must be meted out. Thus, you are out of the garden. That's justice. We don't like to look at it that way, but that's what that is. Justice means and Paul well well Paul what is justice and where's the justice and the wages of sin is death where is the justice in that if you do something wrong there is a punishment for that there must be because God is just If you sin, you suffer, and ultimately you die. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Yeshua in Matthew 7, 2, he says, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Measures, they're important, right? And there's a very, very, very important concept within Judaism called midah kineged midah, which means measure for measure. Measure for measure. In justice, this is how it should work. There is a right way, choose it and prosper. There is a wrong way, choose it and suffer. And thus, if God is just, when we sin, we must be punished. Those are the rules. The scales of justice. That's the vision, right? That's the picture. You, 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 you take something away. We're, we're out of balance. The world is out of balance in that case. And that cannot be. Thus, the Judaism of Yeshua's day, which is Second Temple Judaism, saw something interesting about Sickness, sickness and suffering were tied to sin. And so when we read this text in John that says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? 
this man or his parents that he would be born blind? Yeshua answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And, and, and people read this and say, oh, goodness. silly, ignorant apostles. That sickness and blindness was caused by sin? Yeshua never actually says, no, you idiots, that's totally wrong. He says, in this case, in this man, no one actually suffered. I mean, no one sinned here. But he does not discount the idea because that was the prevalent thinking within Judaism. And it's a part of justice. You sin, you are punished. Well, that's completely illogical. No, it's not. It's totally logical. That's measure for measure. So, so clearly, we, we should say, if we are pursuers of justice, we should say that this is a good system. Justice is good. That the righteous prosper, the wicked suffer, the world is therefore in balance. The righteous prosper, the wicked suffer, the world is in balance. What's the problem with that? The problem is I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in wickedness. Jeremiah says, righteous are you, Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you, he says. Why? Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? One word about justice, one name, three letters. Can you guess it? Who is the picture of injustice when it comes to righteousness in the Bible? Outside of Yeshua, three letters, Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil and evil, and it continues, and that man was the greatest of all the men of the East, and man, he had a prospering, awesome life, didn't he? That is not justice by this system. And how can a just God allow this to be? Where's the measure for measure thing in that? So guess who comes to that? Guess who comes to the rescue with the answer? We'll start turning the apple cart over now. The Pharisees show up with the answer. And what is the answer? What is the thing that divides the one of the foundational dividers between the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Belief in the resurrection, belief in the fact that this world is not the end. The Sadducees, this is it. The Pharisees believed in the afterlife. They believed that there was more to this world. And therefore, and keep in mind, this is the thought of Yeshua's time. Here is the answer. We answer in this world for the next. Let me clarify that. We answer for this world in the next. I mean, I'm sorry. We answer for this world. I'm, we, we answer here for the next world. Let me, let, me, let me clarify it for me. Can I do that? 
The good receive reward, the wicked are punished, but the scales will be balanced in the world to come because there is one, the Pharisees said. All will stand before God to be judged and the God of justice, he remains just and therefore in this life, in this life, the righteous, that is those who are pursuing God, will be tested and tried and will, will suffer in this world that they not suffer in the next. This is the idea. And the wicked, they can prosper all day long here and do all their things they want to do. But in the next world, it won't look so good. So, what we find is that, th- this, that there's actually, it's a it's a grace of God is the way that this was viewed that how much better to suffer some here and enter the world to come and you hear Yeshua talk about that when he says better to enter with like no hands I can't think of the better scripture better to enter with part of your body than all of your body intact at least you're entering in other words if you suffer here it's okay it's part of the process but when you go there Oh, goodness, Damien. (laughs) Silly Pharisees. That is ridiculous. Let me take you to Luke. Remember this? I, I hope maybe this came to your mind when I was telling you this. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment. Remember who this is? The rich man and Lazarus. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted and you are in agony. Who told that story? So we might not want to discount what the Pharisees were saying in the milieu of Second Second Temple Judaism. It's summarized nicely for you here in the Talmud in Kedushin 40b. It says this, The Holy One, blessed be He, brings suffering upon the righteous in this world in order that they inherit the future world. Now this is a stretch and I understand it's hard, you know, having been indoctrinated with a very, very different way of thinking. But I'm telling you, the historical context of Jewish thought in the days of Jesus Christ. Or how about, how about, the Holy One, blessed be He, brings suffering upon the righteous in this world in order that they inherit the future world. Damien, that's the Talmud. We can't pay attention to that. Okay, how about Jesus' brother? Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love Him. James 1. We could even maybe be creative and say that when Yeshua said, in this life, you will have troubles. We might even be able, I'm not going to, but we could suggest that he might have something in mind about the suffering of righteous. Trials and tribulations, it seems, bring us back to God and thus for the righteous, this is actually an advantage. But we have another big problem. We have a very, very big problem. What about the truly righteous? 
What about, for an example in our modern times, what about the Mother Teresas of the world? What about the, the Rebbies of the world? What about the Billy Grahams of the world? What about those people whose entire life is dedicated to the service of God and righteousness and justice? What in the world could explain why they suffer like everyone else? And a second answer arises from the sages. And here is presented, this establishes the core understanding of the question that I pose to you in the teaching today. Why did Messiah suffer and die? How does his suffering impact our lives and offer, as Hebrew says, this promise of eternal inheritance, the theology the theology, and I'm hesitant to use that word because that describes the other five things that I told you about, ransom, substitution, all that. The, the theology, the first century theology that we're looking at here is called the suffering of the righteous. Anyone familiar with this? Oh, good. <laughs> it's not, to be honest, it's not miles away from the idea of penal substitutionary atonement that we talked about last week. But again, as I said, this is 1,600 years prior. This is rabbinic, early rabbinic writing. This is the first century of Jesus. And this is the apostles' framework of how and why. This, underlying this, is the decision to say, I will stake my life on the fact that Jesus died, my sins are forgiven, and I will go to heaven. This is it. That is to say this, if the righteous suffer on earth but are not sinners, why? Sure, you and I, we suffer constantly. We're always at battle with our inclination. We could see why we would have trials and tribulations and suffer and all that. And if we were first century Jews, we'd believe that that was bringing merit to us. But the righteous, for whom do they suffer? After all, they are righteous. Why are they suffering in this world? The righteous are suffering for the sins of others. That's the second thing that the sages brought forth. The righteous are suffering for the sins of others. And, and that exceptional suffering, uh, uh, in the case of these exceptional individuals, provides merit for the sinner, even on a national scale, even on a worldwide scale, the merit of the righteous provides merit for the unrighteous. The suffering of the righteous. For example, Moses says in Exodus 32 after the golden calf, on the next day Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin and now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin. They've made a God of gold for themselves. But now if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. So, by the way, if you get this, Judaism does not need a mediator um, argument. Moses can work. The high priest can work. There are, I mean, you could say David mediated for Israel. No one else was stepping up, and he picked up five rocks and did the deal. 
It's not true to say we don't need a mediator. But that's not my point. Moses was Moses demonstrated righteousness. We read today about him restating how I'm not able to go into the promised land because of you. But overall, let's face it, the dude was pretty darn good. And his merit, his merit provided atonement in this story. Israel was not, was not, was not destroyed after the golden calf. And of course, the suffering servant like the foundation of all of uh, everything we've already quoted here, right? Isaiah 53. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him and His scourging we are healed by His knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as He will bear their iniquities. Another translation, out of His anguish He shall see it. He shall enjoy it in the full through His devotion. My righteous servant makes the many righteous. Right? And if you need it from the New Testament, I'll give you that too. The, the Hebrews 9 part is wrong. This is from 1 Peter chapter 3. It's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what's right rather than if doing, wrong, doing what is wrong. For Messiah also died for sins once for all. What's it say next? The just for the unjust. The suffering of the righteous. Now, we see this in a number of other scriptures that I don't, have to go, I don't have time to go through. But even more so, if in life the righteous suffer, how much more their death. The death of the righteous. And throughout the rabbinic writings, we see statements like the death of the righteous atones. The suffering of the righteous atones. We see this all throughout these writings. For other sinners, for the nations, if the wages of sin is death and the righteous do not sin, who in the world are they dying for? The sinners and the unrighteous and the nations as a whole, Isaiah 53. But, but, what would happen what would happen if someone were wholly righteous? W-H-O-L-L-Y. Well, we don't have to worry about that. It could never happen. Right? Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. But just imagine it. Imagine if a perfectly righteous person were to die, suffer horribly, undeservedly, to give his life sacrificially, willingly, knowing that his pain would be compre beyond comprehension, that he would be executed by pagan idolaters on a piece of wood. Oh, it could never happen. There's never one been perfectly righteous. And even so, I've heard it said, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare to die. But just imagine it. And Ezekiel says, the soul who sins shall die. What if, what if there were a soul that did not 
sin, what would happen? They would not die. But that could never happen. Because surely, there is no one righteous, not one. It did happen. There was one. Holy righteous. The one and only who deserved heaven. Who deserved the world to come. More than anyone ever before or ever after. Abraham, Moses, whoever you give me, no one deserved the world to come like this one. And yet, he died horribly for nothing he had done and suffered the greatest of divine injustices. Where is justice, God? The justice is in midah kineged midah. Measure for measure. He died to pacify the bloodthirsty angry God. No. He died to pacify, to, to restore balance in the world of justice. For if God is not that, then what hope do we have in any promise? And what did the apostles actually see? What were they seeing that would make them do this? What they saw is the King of Israel has come, suffered immeasurably, and is wholly righteous, and He has died for us. The righteous has suffered immeasurably for us by his something, by his suffering, something unique had occurred. Sins were removed, but not just any sins, not the bulls and goats' sins. Amazing sins, sins of conscience. Because we know that the blood of bulls and goats cannot do anything when it comes to the sins of conscience, but how much more might the suffering of the holy righteous do? How much more will the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal Spirit offers Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It did happen. How much more? But there was more. Because here's the thing. Even those righteous on earth who suffer for you, they still die, don't they? They still die. Why do they still die? Because they too are under a curse. No one is wholly righteous except that one. The righteous still die. Why is that? Justice. Because Adam made a mistake. Adam chose the wrong way. And so even, even the righteous on earth who are suffering for others, they're still bound to death. And that is justice. But not for this one who was wholly righteous. Because you see, for the apostles, the theology of the suffering of the righteous, that was evidence for them that his death was efficacious for the removal of their sins. His death 
Suffering was an indication of the removal of their sins, but it did not stop there, did it? The soul who sins shall die, but the soul who does not sin shall not die. And he did not die. Even more, he conquered death. His resurrection was the first fruits, the sign, the seal that his death and now his resurrection atoned all the way back to Adam and restored justice. Because there had to be an answer for Adam. And that answer was death. Every man shall die, right? He says, you've listened to the voice of your wife. Of course, it was her fault. You've eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. You will return from the ground because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But not any more. Because the perfectly righteous has restored the scale of justice. Midah kineged midah. Measure for measure. And the whole Adam thing is another, another story completely. But it says this in Romans 5, For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one. Messiah Yeshua. There was one. It did happen. But only once. And this theology... The idea of of the suffering of the righteous. It is so important for understanding the context and the statements in the New Testament. How does this man's death atone for me? Here it is. A Jewish concept called the suffering of the righteous. I've done this a lot throughout this series, and we're going to wrap this up with this little section, but I'm going to credit one last time uh, Daniel Lancaster for the work that has gone before me in terms of uh, bringing light, elucidating this in a, not suffering of the righteous in a traditional Jewish context, but in a messianic Jewish way understanding this and doing the work, suffering of the righteous in a messianic Jewish perspective applied to Yeshua. But we can see, we can see something very important. Here's the takeaway. We can see that, of course, the sacrifice, the metaphor of sacrifice is at work. It's at work through Hebrews. It's at work through the entire New Testament. It is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. But you know what else is impossible according to the Torah? That Yeshua's work could do what bulls and goats did. And someone, I think, I don't know, I'm not sure, someone may have left the synagogue over me saying that one time. That's not what it was for.
They don't have to be in competition. The temple, the sacrifices, the Torah, the priesthood, they don't. Yeshua is a different priesthood, a different venue, a different sacrifice. And here's the real thing. The literal application, and I told you this last week, of Yeshua having a little jar at the bottom of the cross or or in, in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb and collecting a little thing of blood, a little bucket of blood of his and, and ascending up into heaven and carrying that into the to the supernal holy of holies and saying, I'm here, Father, and splashing it. That didn't happen. The literal idea of a blood sacrifice going into the holy of holies in heaven and Yeshua sprinkling His blood and doing... It's not literal. His blood represents this idea of Pain and suffering for you. It's different than a sacrifice. They're not in competition. And so here's the problem. People are so concerned when you talk about there being a third temple or the fact that there may be sacrifices that are going to be restored. And you're like, you're you're minimizing Yeshua's work. He was the ultimate sacrifice. But not like that. There's no, there's no contradiction between what Yeshua did by his death, burial, and resurrection and something with the sacrifices. We can be totally confident that the prophets are correct in indicating that there will be a temple with sacrifices. But there will never, ever, ever be a holy, righteous one who suffers like that for you and provides atonement. It's a Different, different thing. And I told you this, Yeshua and the sacrificial system. Leman Yeshua Rabbeinu Bishutu Suyochalo for the sake of our Master Yeshua in His merit and virtues. In other words, in His holy, righteous suffering, I lay claim to the promises. Because he suffered and died. Yeshua's sacrifice was by the merit of his suffering once. Perfect. Righteous. He figuratively, by his his unmerited death, brought into the very presence of God. He provided this atonement. And the sacrificial system of the high priest and Yom Kippur, it's a perfect picture of what it looks like. But they're so different. So important. And within the most powerful messianic prophecy in the Bible, we're going to see so clearly with properly tuned eye and ear the suffering of the righteous revealed. And I will take you back to Isaiah 53. The suffering of the righteous atones. The death of the righteous atones. Isaiah 53, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet... We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. What does that mean? Period. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We are the ones who did that. Remember when the apostles asked Yeshua, who sinned here? Who sinned? His parents. Why is he suffering like that? Why is he blind? Who sinned? Him or his parents? That's actually the same thing. We saw Yeshua, 
According to Isaiah 53, the nation would see him and they would say, Ugh, loser, sinner. He's suffering because of his own sin. He's suffering. We ourselves esteemed him smitten. In other words, we, we stood in judgment of him. But Isaiah continues and says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. In other words, we thought one thing, but that's not at all the case of what was going on. We didn't see it. We didn't esteem him. It was for us. He suffered for you. Not for his own, of course. And, but, but Damien, this, this whole angry God thing, this whole angry God, the very real suffering had merit. How do we know this? Because Isaiah continues and says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. And there, that is interpreted to say, see, it brought pleasure to God to crush him because somebody had to pay the price. That's so wrong. Do you remember? The Lord was pleased to crush him. Do you remember in the Jordan River when Yeshua came down and John saw him approaching and there was this immersion. Tevila took place and he came up and the Spirit of God descended upon him. And what was the voice out of heaven saying? In whom I am pleased. The Lord was pleased to crush him. Why? Because this is my son in whom I am well pleased. I am pleased that he has be that he has succeeded. He is perfect in righteousness. He has won. I knew he would from the beginning. I was pleased then. I'm so pleased with my son for what he has done. The mission that began before, before the foundations, the remedy before the wound, the mission that began that day at the Jordan, it is finished. And He has brought me so much joy. This is my Son in who I am pleased I'm pleased because justice is restored. And my children, who I love, who I weep over, are restored by the suffering of my precious Son. I am pleased to see Him do this. And therefore... I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. And what will happen? His suffering atoned for all of us.
and the Holy Spirit that he received that day at the Jordan has been handed over to you as a sign and a seal of the second part of the promise. He came into the protos and he gave his life and suffered and died for you by his merit and virtues. We are healed. And the second part, the deuteros, he will return. And the Holy Spirit serves to remind us that we are not alone. The Holy Spirit was the guarantee, the seal for all who would believe because here's the last part. In order to receive this atonement, you must believe that He is the one and only holy, righteous, suffering servant. that Yeshua has demonstrated through his willingness to suffer and die on our behalf, that he is the way, the truth, the life. Second Corinthians, it says, he made him who knew no sin to be our sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is the way to the Father, the way, the truth, the life, the truth to all the better promises, the key to the eternal life, connection to the world to come. There is no other way in the Holy Spirit that he received then has been poured out upon us. No angels, no Moses, no high priest, the Son of God. For by one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being. It says, who have been, but that's not its present tense. You are still being sanctified. And we have these promises of the new covenant for which we're waiting on. And the author of Hebrews tells us, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Yeshua, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh, we have a great priest over the house of God. Let us draw near. There's that sacrificial language. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. By the blood of Yeshua, the holy righteous who suffered according to the suffering of the righteous and the restoration of justice, measure for measure, he atoned for you. Draw near. And so the author of Hebrews concludes his exhortation over the next few chapters with an encouragement. He's shown you. He's shown you everything. Now we must hold fast. Stay strong. Have faith in the hope we have. And I too, next week, in conclusion to this entire series, will do the same in an encouragement to hold fast to the righteous one who suffered to make a way for you. Shabbat Shalom. We hope you enjoyed the weekly teaching. We'd love to hear from you with a comment, a prayer request, or questions you might have. We believe the mission and message of Messianic Judaism is something the world needs now. If you enjoy these teachings, would you consider financially supporting the work of Nachamu Ami by visiting our website at www.makinmessianic.com and clicking the Give Online button in the upper right corner. Thank you again for listening.